Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Today's Gospel lesson um, provides a pretty strong imperative about who Jesus is. This is not uh, just um, a, a skilled teacher and preacher. Um, this is the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And I was thinking about these texts, about um, what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple, to proclaim him the Son of the living God, to follow him and believe him as the Messiah on one hand, and on the other hand, how do we live in a world that is oftentimes so different than the vision of the kingdom of God? I listened to a talk that was given by Dr. Scott Batersay, who is the academic dean and professor of ethics at the Seminary of the Southwest, and I was so struck by what he had to say that I am not ashamed to say that I will be stealing liberally um, from his talk. And so anything that is brilliant in today's sermon um, is probably owed um, to uh, Dr. Batersay's um, reflections on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in a world and more particularly in a country that is divided. How is it that we live together and how is it that we are together? We might think about and reflect upon the issues that church members face that we oftentimes take positions on, either privately or publicly, that cause division or at least separation from each other. Black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter, same-sex marriage, the U.S. presidential election, or it could be something as simple as should we put carpeting or tile in a particular room of the church. There are numerous issues that divide us politically and spiritually, and yet hopefully we can all say that there is but one Lord one faith, and one baptism. That hopefully we as Christians can learn 
to disagree better than the way the world disagrees. It would be silly for us to assume that we could go through life and be within church community together and not have disagreements with one another. The question is, can we make those disagreements to be Christ-like? I wanted to avoid asking these questions and, and providing some introspection on them as we get closer and closer to November because I know that September and October our social media is going to be filled with our thoughts about the presidential election and hopefully having some space before that we might reflect on what it means to disagree in a Christ-like way. One way of us being together is that we crash into one another. Figuratively and literally, there are times in our lives in which our lives intersect with someone else's and there is no way that we can avoid um, um, conf conflicting with one another. And, 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 you know, most of the time that's not the way in which we interact, but sometimes we just sit there and we can't help but to crash into one another. One of the other things that we do is we try to avoid the crashing. We try to avoid with one another or we try to avoid conflict altogether and we think that if we just don't talk about anything then look how well we're getting along. Jonathan Haidt, who is a moral psychologist, um, has written and reflected a lot about how we as human beings develop our moral functioning. He gives this image of the rider and an elephant as a way of understanding it. Elephant, he says, is our intuitive sense. And then the rider tries to make sense of what the elephant is doing. Now, I have never ridden an elephant, but I am told that trying to tell an elephant where to go is near impossible. And so the rider just has to assume that the direction the elephant is going is the direction that the rider intended to go. Research shows that our strategic decision-making and our reasoning seeks to justify the decision that we have already made. Think about that just again. Research shows that when we try to reason something, what we often do is justify what we, the decision that we have already made or the thing that we have already thought. How many times have you been faced with a piece of information that maybe runs counter to your dominant belief and you figure out a way to dismiss that piece of information because you want to hold on to that thing that you think? Jonathan Haidt's research says that most of the time our reasoning is self-serving. And that what we do is try to avoid ever putting any kinks into the thought process and beliefs that we already have. And so the rider of the elephant acts more like a press secretary who tries to put the best foot forward to defend and explain whatever decision we have made. And one of the ways that we do this is through confirmation bias. It is in our strategic interest to uphold what we already think and we, what we already believe. And so what do we do? We go to places and sources where we know that we will not be confronted with something that might challenge us. 
We see this in the people that we follow on social media, the places from which we receive our news, and even, although sometimes more, uh, sometimes unintentionally, who we choose to spend our time with. How many people do you count as close friends who have different political opinions than you? Because our goal in life is to reaffirm what we already believe, and this is a way of avoiding. So we have crashing into each other, and we have avoiding, which is that we try to stay apart from one another. But what if you don't want to crash into each other, and you don't want to avoid each other? What would it look like for Christians to disagree well? Well, Dr. Bader say reflects upon a portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, and he takes a couple of key words that I want to highlight for you. He says, first is, is that we have to see one another. We have to see the reality of the person that is before me. And one of the things that we believe in Holy Scripture and what we have taught is is that each and every single one of us is made in the image and likeness of God. And so when I see someone who is different than me, what I am seeing is somebody who is made and created in the image of God. And when we hold that as something that is critical to our understanding of the other, it really changes and challenges the way that we disagree with one another. Everyone that we encounter has something in them that is lovable. Now true, for some of us, we have to search a little bit harder to find something lovable about them, but each and every one of us has something worthy of love because they are made in the image of God. We are invited to see the person and see their story. One of the most um, powerful scenes for me, um, thinking theologically about this, um, comes from the book um, and the movie The Shack. In The Shack, you have the story of a man who was abused um, by his father and has always held on to that abuse and um, his, his, his anger and his frustration Um, of his father for the abuse that he and his mother endured. And there comes this time in which he is is arguing with God about this and and wanting wanting God's judgment upon his father for what he did. And, And wisdom, God's wisdom, unveiled to this man what his father's life was like. And in seeing the life that his father grew up in, he got at least a little bit of sense about why he was treated the way that he was. Not that it justifies or excuses or approves of that behavior, but when we understand someone else's story, we might be able to understand them. Dr. Steve Tomlinson at the Seminary of the Southwest came and spoke at our clergy conference a few years ago about about this very issue and question about conflict. And he shares this story about someone that he encountered on an airplane who he knew from the get-go that they had different political opinions and beliefs. And I don't want to belabor you with this story, but, but in talking to this guy, he found out that under... That, that under this sort of, um, this is what I believe politically, 
that there was a whole lot more depth to his character about why his political belief was so important to him because everything else, including his marriage and his family, was crumbling around him. And so, Dr. Tomlinson says that when we can see and understand somebody else, we can at least begin to appreciate why they believe that why they believe the way that they do. One of the hallmarks of Anglicanism is that um, really what holds us together is our desire to be together. Sure, we have a book of common prayer that provides a framework for worship and praying and believing. Yes, we have a catechism, but it is not in depth in terms of what, what it is that we have to believe. Yes, we have bishops who try to hold on to the apostolic faith, but the reality is, is that the mechanisms for enforcement are pretty minimal. And so the thing that holds us together is our desire to be together. And so when we learn to disagree well, we learn how it is to be an Anglican Christian, to have affection for one another, even when maybe we don't like each other. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, talks about how affection is the least discriminating of all of the loves. Eros, or romantic love, is something that is very discriminating, right? Hopefully you don't have a lot of people in your life that you have romantic love for. Even friendship is a little bit more discriminating, right? We're not friends with everybody we encounter, but affection, affection is not very discriminating. Lewis um, describes affection this way. He says it's like being able to go into a bookstore and finding at least one book that you want to read. And this, he says, is how affection for others works. We may not necessarily want to be romantically involved with them, and we may not actually want to be friends with them, but we can find at least one thing about them for which we have affection for them. Listening is a key part of understanding what it is about somebody else that we could have affection for. It is to actively be curious about the other person. What is going on in their lives? Understanding their position, not so that you can debate them or retort back what you think, but understanding why they believe what they believe. What is underneath that? The poet Strangefellow says that listening is a primitive act of love. So important is this sense of listening that Martin Luther, in his catechism, when he talked about the Eighth Commandment, which is do not bear false witness, says that, that bearing false witness is not just actively lying about another person, but it is also about interpreting the actions of the other in the best possible light. Finally, Paul tells us that we have to learn how to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. We need to speak what is true. We need to speak what is on our heart. We do not have to water down one another's beliefs so we can avoid conflict. But rather, we have to be able to do so in a loving way. We have to be willing to make room for complexity. We don't like complexity as a culture. We want everything to be able to fit into a simple tweet that can explain everything. 
but I think about some of the complexities of the questions that we're faced with. Is coffee healthy or is it detrimental? Is a glass of wine a day good for you or does it harm you? Is red meat okay to eat? The answer is yes. Or is it bad for the environment and potentially bad for your own health? Right? These are not things that we have simple answers to that we can just say, aha, that what it takes place is a moral reasoning within our own lives to interpret the data as we understand it. So we have to learn how to communicate well with one another, and it's something that takes skill, particularly in a church community. Because hopefully staying in community and being with one another is something that we desire. That we have to develop a certain patience for one another so that we can be together. That we can bear with one another in love. Yoda says, do or do not, there is no try. But Paul seems to conflict a little bit here with Yoda, and Paul says that sometimes what we have to do is in fact try. And even in the times in which we fail to be good at being in community with each other, even in the times in which we are not good at listening to one another or hearing another, we have to continue to try because Christian community is a different sort of community. We are bound together, knitted together into one body. There is no separation from each other. So it leaves open, we must leave open the possibility to try and to try again. So Scott Badersay, Dr. Badersay, ends and says that we often have an image of conversation by sitting at a table and looking at each other. And he says maybe what we have to do is rethink about how it is that we disagree and instead of looking at each other, sit facing forward and imagine Jesus in front of you. And ask, can you imagine Jesus saying what I am trying to say, right? Let's, have, let's introspect our own selves first. Is what I'm saying consistent with a disciple of Jesus? And then think about the person you're in conflict with. What would it sound like if Jesus was hearing those words? So as we enter this challenging uh, time in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of election, in the midst of social unrest and economic uncertainty, let's, brothers and sisters, as we follow the one that we say is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, let's reflect that in word and deed and how we treat one another. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more, go to ChristChurchTulsa.org. And peace be with you.